because I was a ruthlessly pretentious 18-year-old when I was making those choices, Paul. I wanted to do something that I thought sounded cool when people asked me, what are you studying? And that was it. My guest today is the Regional Vice President, EMEA, for Connect and Sell. And here's what one of his colleagues says about him. Jerry is a strategic thinker, a powerhouse of insight, and has a polymathic understanding of the sales technology space. He's always innovating, pushing forward, questioning, learning, seeking, and above all, executing. He has a no-holds-barred mentality to enterprise sales. He's an indefatigable change agent that can bring transportation to enterprise organizations. A great sense of humor, customer-centric, and a gifted, charismatic leader. Jerry Hill, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Whoever said that, I owe them a lot of money, I reckon, by the way. <laughs> well, it's, it's quite interesting, and that's why I said one, <laughs> because before I have a guest on, I'll go on the LinkedIn profile and I'll look to what things people say about them. And, and I love it when you see somebody who has 10 or 15 recommendations, because then you can go and you can pull out a line here and a line there and a line yeah. there. And uh, it just keeps it nice and short. And then I read your first one, and I thought, that's it. I'm not changing a word of that. I can't. <laughs> that is just perfect. I'm, and I read a few others, and many of them in the same vein. But that one was so well crafted. I thought, that's it. I'm just lifting the thing in its entirety. Amazing. Amazing. So, uh, yeah, kudos to their copywriting skills. Exactly, right? What, what an um, author. Actually a published yeah. author now as well, Justin Michaels. So, yeah, wonderful guy. Oh, very good. Very yeah. good. Yeah. So, so kudos to Justin. Um, I, and, and Justin mentioned your interest in sales tech, and I, I, as a as a techie guy myself, going back many years, I have a huge interest in that space as well. But I don't know it that well, other than mainstream tools. And so, I do want to talk to you about that. But before we go there, uh, I know you're English. Um, but I don't know where you grew up in England. Uh, tell me a little bit about that, what that was like. Yeah, I, um, so I'm actually quite international. I've got an English father with an Israeli grandmother on one side, and then I've got a Welsh South African mother, and I was born in South Africa and came back to the UK when I was, uh, I think we were five when we relocated back to the UK. So a bit of international context for sure. Um, yeah. And then we were outside of London. So I was basically in what I would describe as sort of tech, tech UK, Bracknell. So who was there? Hewlett Packard, Dell, um, Cable and Wireless. They were all centered Oracle. They were all in that sort of valley mm. just outside of London. Mm. So yeah, my dad's an old IBM exec. Um, so yeah, I sort of grew up in that environment. Could could I'm just wondering when you look at your background, it might explain the interest in rugby. Apart from the Israeli one, I, I don't think they're they're, they're no, big in the rugby no, game. <laughs> no, my, my, no, my dad, my dad's always been anti-football. Like I didn't have a choice really as a kid. It was rugby or nothing in my household. So you know, <laughs> he's one of those sort yeah. of like die-hard rugby guys. But no, I mean it was. Um, I'm not particularly athletic, but I was always quite big. So, you know, I'm six yeah. foot I'm six foot six, I'm like twenty one stone or something. Like there was very few choices for me. But now it's more about frustrated yeah. golfer than it is like frustrated ex rugby player. So, you know, that's where I spend all my time today. It's it's it, that's life. Pick your frustration. Yeah, exactly. And go for it. Exactly. Yeah. And then spend lots of money to indulge it. That's the other weird thing about golf. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I don't play it myself and and I, I have a story on that one. Uh, the very, very short version of it was at 14, there was a Pan, uh, what not, I was going to say a Pan Am, um, Pro-Am uh, tournament of the town I was in and teacher said, anybody want to go out and earn some money as a caddy, just go, sh right. just show up in the morning. So I showed up and knew nothing about golf, uh, went over and made myself known and some guy said, yeah, you know, stand there and wait for us to tee off and I'm standing there not knowing what to do. Short version is ball goes down, gets stuck in the rough. Two guys are looking for it. I'm standing there like an idiot. And they said to me, well, come on, look for it. So I start looking over there. They're looking over here. And I go over and I see the ball and I pick it up and I go, is this your ball? <laughs> that was the end. I can imagine what unveiled after that in terms yeah. of the swearing and they fired instantly, go back and find somebody else and send them up. Somebody yeah, who knows what they're doing. Uh, so uh, I think that scarred me for life from uh, golf. 
but my, my son has gotten into it and he loves it. But um, yeah, I, I, you mentioned Bracknell, you said you grew yeah, up. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's yeah. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned the fact that you grew up in this valley and you said, I'm just curious to know how that influenced you when you saw all those tech companies because it's a little bit, I mean, I know that part of the world and I've done a lot of work there. It's, it's like a concrete jungle. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So, yeah. So I'm just wondering, uh, was it these companies you saw and said, I want to work for one of those, or was it just kind of instilled that you, well, you kind of imbibe the technology space? I, I don't think it's as sort of deliberate as that, but there's always sort of osmosis, right? There's sort of influences mm. that you can't control. Um, I think, you know, there's two, two axes for me. One was, you know, there's two phases to my, my growing up, right? There's a phase where we had a lot, there was abundance. And then there was a phase after the sort of black Wednesday event where we had nothing for a long time. And Ooh. I think I sort of saw what the alternatives looked like if I didn't sort of graft, but I'm not particularly bright and I'm not particularly academically hardworking. So sales always seemed like quite a natural thing for me to progress towards because it was meritocratic and it was about wits and it was about skill more than about sort of academic endeavor. So I kind of always had it in the back of my head. And I also knew what it could do for somebody because I'd seen it firsthand based on where my, my dad had had some success, but I could also see mm. where it was really brittle. Right. And, you know, if you're mm. not, consistently top performing where you lose your job and that has massive impacts right especially in the way mm. that tech companies hire and fire but i think the other sort of natural consequence of being where we were is that i know a lot of people that would be described as poor at school who've gone on to have incredible careers in tech companies because of where mm. they were born not because of what they were capable of mm. um you know, and it's quite interesting. I've got a friend, Claire. She she works in education, and she particularly works in helping kids from underprivileged and economically impacted areas in the UK find paths into the sort of top ten universities in Britain. And we were having mm. a conversation one day, and she said it's just by quirk of postcode that so many people we know have got amazing lives. Um, mm. And I often think about that. And to sort of color that in more, there's one guy at school got expelled at 15. He's now like VP of a success channel for Dell. He started off mm. on a customer service desk there when he was 16 mm. as a temp. So it's by virtue mm. of being there that virtually everyone that you know ends up working in like one of those big enterprises in, in the sort of Thames Valley Valley, right? So yeah, it's just it's just mm. sort of serendipity, good luck, timing and a consequence yeah. of where you are often for a lot of people. That's interesting because I, I reading, um... Uh, oh, his name will come to me, Malcolm Gladwell. Yeah. And he was talking about, it wasn't a geographic or a postcode privilege, I guess. I, I don't, I'm beginning to dislike that word. Um, but happenstance, right? Um, but it was more to do with what time, when you were born. And it was to do, in, you, you coached rugby, so you can appreciate this. Um, kids, particularly boys, you know, a year in the difference can make a huge difference yeah, in their physicality. Yeah. And that the, the teams based on age, there was, there was a cutoff. Let's say it's December 31st. So if you were born in the 1st of January, you went into the following year. Yeah. Now, don't ask me to work out in the moment which, which <laughs> side of 31st gives you the advantage. Yeah. But you can imagine the, the huge advantage that gives people who are that extra growth, that yeah. year's growth in a younger team. And then what happens is they get noticed yeah. and then they get put into the hyper and they get the better coaches. Yeah. And there was a study done and it followed people throughout their lives. And it was fascinating that an incredible, like it, I, I'm going to pick a figure out my, you know, I was going to say out of, out of thin air, <laughs> like an 80% of these high performance yeah. athletes in the States have their birthdays within a very narrow two month range. Um, yeah, it is. It is alive, and, and I want to go back. If you're okay with it for a moment, you mentioned Black Wednesday. Um, now I'm familiar with Black Black Thursday was '87, right? That was the the, the first big shot. Black Thursday, yeah. I think it was Black Thursday. Maybe I got my days. Of okay, the so it was already, it there's was been a few of them. Yeah, it was '87. Yeah. Okay, and yeah, uh, that that was when the computers went crazy yeah. and. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, curious, you mentioned we lost everything, and and as comfortably are because I'm always interested in how 
uh, adversity can actually turn out to be a positive. And I'm curious to know from your perspective, at the time it must have been awful, and and I don't know any of the details, so just I'm just curious to know the what good it did. Yeah, what good came from it? It it did a lot of good in the long term um, because it sort of anchors on some resilience, but. You know, it was quite quite toxic at the time, and you know, it led to my parents breaking up. It led to a divorce. It led to a home repossession. It led to a long period oh, of uncertainty. It led to me sort of going to schools with different people that I had never ever encountered socially before at that point. So all of a sudden, I go from sort of quite a nice sort of village environment with sort of fairly socially similar people to go into this new secondary school which wasn't particularly bad by most modern standards but by what i'd been exposed to it was quite rough so i used to get like a little bit of bullying for being posh for being like this like posh kid in this school and stuff and i didn't really know how to deal with that um Mm. so i mean there's a lot there that happens and at the Mm. time you think oh it's a bit shit right but you get on with it right Mm. you get on with it you find Mm. new ways to make friends What's the power that comes back from there? Well, resilient. Like you learn to stand up mm. for yourself pretty much and sort of stay strong in the face of that. I think the other thing that you learn is how to be an over-communicator, right? You need to over-communicate to be able to bring people back on side and to get people on mm. your side when they've got beliefs about you that aren't fair or aren't particularly reasonable. I think I doubled down on sport at that point as well because I was looking at paths. You know, I, I, I had this one unique memory when I was about 13, which was like, I never want to be poor again. Mm. That was it, right? I never want to be poor again. And I had that memory. And then from the age of 13 onwards, I was working. I was working all the time at everything. I was doing my sport, but I was caddying at Sunningdale Golf Club. I'd get up at Mm. six in the morning with the older boys in my neighborhood, get on the train, and I'd spend the whole day, every Friday, Saturday, and Sunday where I could at the golf course, just hustling for like 20 quid rounds of Mm. golf and keeping that money and saving that money. And then I'd jump out and then I was like working at Burger King on a Saturday, Morrison's on a Sunday. I was doing night shifts and stuff because I never, ever wanted to have that feeling of being sort of financially um, codependent ever again. Right. And I think it did two things for me. It gave me a work ethic, which is unparalleled, I think. And then the other thing it gave me was just this idea that you could anybody can graft their way out of any situation. Right. And, and those are the two things that have stood me in good stead, really, I think. That's interesting. Listening to that, it's really powerful. Um, it sounds to me it's, it, there's strong parallels there between that and the common immigrant story you hear, where people have come yeah, from maybe. poverty and saying, I'm never going back to that, and they outwork everybody else. And, and you're right, it's pure graft. Uh, there's no magic formula to it. And um, they, they have this incredible work ethic, and, and, and again, the, the over-communication and, and so on. It's interesting to see that come from adversity. Yeah. Um, and I've still got yeah. a massive chip on my shoulder today, right? And I never want to lose it. I never want to lose that chip on my shoulder. I think wow. that's I think that's the thing that gives me an edge. I've always got those memories baked in and no yeah. matter how well things go for me, I just never assume complacency at all. Like it's always there. Is it a chip though or is it a fire under your ass? Because it, to uh, me a chip on shoulders is like a is a victim mentality, uh, and I don't think you have that. No, but at the same time, I you know, where I live now, it's there's quite a lot of entitlement and we've got sort of friends of friends who've got like kids that don't work. They're in their 40s with kids that are just sort of milking elf generational money and stuff. And mm. and that that I just find that really, really odious, like because I think work gives people mm. meaning and I think work gives yeah. humans meaning and it centers them and it gives them some substance, even if they yeah. don't need to do it, they should do it. But yeah. seeing 41-year-old men with three kids sort of sitting on their couch all day and then going and playing golf in the evening, but still having like a six grand a month income, there's something weird about that. But would you want to live their lives? No, I wouldn't. Would you want That's to be the inside point. their heads? No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Yeah. But yeah. the fact that they don't know any different is the thing. They've got no yeah. other experiences that, that gives them a different perspective. But it means that they're yeah. fundamentally boring people as well, right? That's the other side of it. They've got nothing interesting to talk about because they don't have any scar tissue, they don't have any bruises. Mm. Scar tissue and bruises are good because they heal and they grow, right? But if you haven't mm. experienced anything, then what can you grow into and grow from? Like that, that's mm. always fascinated me. So I mm. see it as a bit of a chip on my shoulder because I, you know, I've got a different perspective now, right? Recently mm. had a kid and, you know, all being well, then you know he could be in that position one day. But the 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 new chip on my shoulder is ensuring that he doesn't behave like that. That he doesn't get that. You know, he yeah. has to he has to understand yeah. the value of work to value of what you yeah. get from that. 
So it's, yeah. it's, it's new, right? And it's interesting. Yeah. But I think those experiences, I don't want to be in a sort of, you know, short sleeve to short sleeve, three generational shift here. Like it's, it's mm. got to be more important than that. Mm. But I, I, I agree. And I think that's a lot of that is within our control as well. Like I have yeah. kids and some of my friends think I'm nuts because the, because it's very hard for them. At, they're young adults, but to find a place that they can live in and afford nowadays is just nigh yeah, impossible. impossible. Yeah. But I charge them rent. Now, I don't charge them market rent, but I've always said they need to pay something because that's setting them up for life. They'll get it back when I'm dead, but they need to learn the importance of paying your way. And it would be easy for them not to pay it, but I don't think that's good for 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 kids. And, no, I, and I think it's 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 an I think it's becoming an old fashioned uh, virtue at the moment yeah. of learning to pay your way and and, and yeah, earning your way. That's yeah. It. There's an, there's another podcast I listen to, and you might like it actually. It's um it's like a revenue book club by this recruiter called Jonathan Graham, and he basically reviews sales books with his business partner. It's fun. Okay. They're quite salty. Yeah. They've got opinions. But he said something quite interesting. I think he lives near Durham. And he was like, I don't see poor students on the streets anymore. Right? When we yeah. were at university, we were grafting, right? We were constantly working. Yeah. Everything was a struggle. Um, yeah. Now, everything just feels a bit, well, you know easy and like they don't have to sort of come hard by things and they don't earn those nights out it's just they seem to have yeah. just, you know yeah and like if i look at sales leaders i really admire like jeremy duggan and people like cedric pesh over at mongodb they put a massive amount of emphasis on their interview process around sort of finding people's life stories and you know being blown away by oh my god could i have overcome that and there's a reason for that, right? I think high-performing yeah. sellers in general, consistent high-performing sellers generally have a, a really hard sort of resentment somewhere deep in their core, yeah. compounded by resilience to get them away from that resentment. Um, and it's not a topic that we investigate enough in selling. I think we look at skills so right. much, but we don't look at yeah. DNA enough, right? Yeah, no, I agree. In fact, uh, kind of last word, because I do want to talk to you about yeah. sales tech and get into that world. but. Uh, relatives of mine who are both public servants were talking about the interviewing one of them is going for this job and it's a it's competency-based interviewing and I mentioned the fact that interviewing I think it's important to kind of shake the shake the shake the tree a little bit shake the branches right and uh, no 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 that that's that's old school it's competency and, I'm th and I was thinking to myself okay the competency is the price of entry but and you have to check it out but surely it's attitude and resilience. These are the things that you want to investigate. And that's not in a competency-based interview where you're looking at, well, how did you do this yeah. in your last job? And I think it's, anyway, we're in danger of going down the no, world no, is going fine. soft. <laughs> it's fine. Look, it's an important statement and, and your perspective on it is brilliant. And, and thank you for sharing that. Um, you, you went to college and you studied was uh, international politics and yeah. economics. Why did you choose those particular topics? Because I was a ruthlessly pretentious 18-year-old when I was making those choices, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> no, no other reason than that. No other reason than that. I wanted to do something that I thought sounded cool when people asked me, what are you studying? And that was it. <laughs> Best answer to a question I've had in a long, long time. No, I, I reflect yeah. on university. It was it was interesting and useful on one axis, but at the same time, I feel like it was a comprehensive waste of time. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, in retrospect, would I have gone? Possibly not. I would have probably tried to find a way to be productive earlier in my life. Um, I was I was a, I was quite a weird dude at uni as well. I was quite inconsistent, quite unreliable. Um, you know, I sort of flitted around friendship groups, you know, I wasn't particularly diligent, I didn't work very hard. And then you sort of look at the mm. sort of compounding effect of that, you sort of then exit university and go into the real world and you assume that that's normal behaviour. So then you get a bit of a shock when you realise that you can't be flaky. So I think yeah. that, you know, that was that was quite quite wasteful, but I probably learned stuff along the way and I probably made friendships and stuff and I drank my body weight in beer a lot. but. You know, I just, I don't find that the way that we give the sort of tertiary education system in the UK to be particularly useful. It's a lot about vanity. Mm. It's a lot about courses which actually have no real world impact. 
and it's mm. about teaching that's very very thin right like mm. if i compare my experiences to my us colleagues they were doing a 40 hour week at university with mandated sort of course loads we were doing eight hours at best you can squeeze yeah. the whole university experience from three and a half years into one year 100%. And so so there's a yeah. huge amount of waste in the system. And yeah, I came out of it going, well, not sure if it was all hyped up the way it was supposed to be. And are these really the best years of somebody's life? Because mm. I, I just can't see that being the case in my case. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I don't understand why you can't do a, a, like an SDR type, like an apprenticeship, and then go to college at night if you want to, um, because you'll find the time. There's no question if you really want to do yeah. it, but and I know there's a coming of age thing as well, but um, I I think certainly the way it's gone, uh, and I know in the states that the cost of education oh, is like shocking. Yeah. It's it's yeah, you're it's saddled fun. with this debt yeah. for debt for so long. It's yeah. it's it's insane. No, it's it's nuts. It's nuts. And yeah. um, there needs to be a real world consequence, like for the things that you do and how it can impact society. I'm not sure a film and TV degree or an international politics degree actually crosses over particularly well. Yeah. Now, some yeah. people would argue it's about critical thinking, right? But, yeah, you know, I'm sure no. that that's true, but you have to actually put yeah. in the work to get the value from that perspective. Yeah. So. yeah. No, in, in, in my country, in Ireland right now, I just saw it advertised last week. You can now get a three-year degree in bar management. Yeah. Well, you could do that vocationally and learn on the job. And exactly. Exactly. Anyway, again, I'm finding myself descending into the... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, sales. How did you get then into sales from international politics and economics? Um... Yeah, I, I wasn't bright enough to get on the milk ground for the interesting stuff like... And a lot of my peers were like think tanks, investment banks, trading. I mean, back then, nobody wanted to be in sort of sales, really. That wasn't sexy. Um, mm. what, what was sexy? Trying to be a trader or trying to get into investment mm. banking. That was sexy because that's where everyone thought the money was. It's amazing mm. to think that 20 years down from that, everybody wants to be in tech sales now because that's mm. the sexy thing to do. How did I get in? I, I didn't really have much direction. So I took a year. Well, I took six months, really after university and I went and played rugby in America. Um, I met some really cool cool men, actual men with actual jobs and actual responsibilities, but still seemed to have a lot of fun with it. And yeah. they had they had interesting jobs. And America obviously at the time, you know, they've never had a problem with professional selling as a as a as a vocation, yeah. right? It's a good thing. It's a noble thing. It's what drives economies. And I think I relearned that perspective. Um, and I relearned that from some brilliant guys. One of them was this guy mm. called Big Bob, rest in peace. He had a horrible death from astroleucodystrophy. He was doing some amazing campaigning work on stem cells before he died. But he was a farmer mm. rep. And I remember like day two in the States, he was sort of part of our sort of indoctrination committee, I guess that's what I'd call it. And he took us out for lunch and I saw how much money was in his current account by mistake when he went to the mm. ATM. And I was like, holy shit, Bob, what do you do? And he says, oh, I sell medicine. <laughs> and I was like, what, you sell money and you sell this and you get that? And he was like, yeah. So I was like starting to see the the, the idea. When I got back, yeah. I just got in touch with one of those sort of rec to rec consultants and they put me in touch with a whole bunch of recruitment oh. consultancies. Oh. And I ended up working in staffing mm. for like a while at Robert Half. So that that's kind of like job one. Um, you know, a victim of my own sort of conceit that I was a bit arrogant still, I was a little bit conceited, thought I knew better, did really well, but didn't sustain that particularly, but I could never mm. think about it as being my fault, which was weird. You know, I thought about it as being market's fault or marketing's mm. fault or, you know, somebody else's fault. So yeah, it was a bit weird, but I enjoyed the experience. But mm. you know, we see it all the time, right? We see people that come into new sales roles, entry level, think they know everything because they're quite charismatic and speak a lot, but they actually know very little at all. Mm. I was I was kind of one of those kids. I think I'd have been a nightmare mm. to manage. Paul. When did you, or what was the pivotal moment where you went from this? It's not my fault to. It's my fault now. What can I do about it? It's a, it's a mindset. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think I got quite self-aware after that. Um, probably about two years down from there. I think my mum said something to me once. She said, you know, if it's once, it's a mistake. If it happens a lot, it's a trend. 
And I kind of thought quite deeply on that. And I was like, okay. And then I started to basically sort of really dig deep on myself and what she meant by that. And yeah, it sort of was a bit of a wake up call, but it was a good wake up call. You know, it's like that first mm. sort of splash of cold water in the morning, you know, that's mm. refreshing at the same time. It's quite mm. liberating. You know, mm. I don't know when you go back to being 10 years old and you tell a whopper of a lie to your parents and actually it comes out, you're quite relieved because you're not sort of protecting the mm. lie anymore. That's kind of how it actually felt. And then I think yeah. I now over-index it. I go so far the other way. I'm always looking to see, you know, where I can be accountable and where I can own something mm. now, mm. which is good. But sometimes you don't need to as much, right? Yeah. You don't need to Yeah, do it's, that. it's always just the line, isn't it? Where's the line? Yeah. What age were you, by the way, when that realization came to you? 24, 25. Do you know what? It was funny. I was In my head, I had a number of 24 because there yeah. seems to be something, and I think it's in men particularly, we mature later and there's something in our early 20s, 23, 24, 25, when if we're lucky, we begin to see the world yeah. for what it is and it's different and we tend to lose this. Uh, maybe it's, an, it's a kind of a testosterone thing when you're younger and yeah. you, 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 you overcompensate and you exaggerate your own you know, immortality. And, yeah, yeah, well. yeah, there's something, yeah. Uh, and I just wonder, because you're, you're quite self-deprecating as well, and I'm wondering, was that something that happened at that time, or was that more of a defense mechanism when you went, when you had to change schools, where you had to become more self-deprecating in order to be accepted? Well, I think it's um, laws of attraction, right? I think about the laws mm. of attraction a lot, and here's how I think about it. Like, you might know the answer to somebody, something, but if somebody shows you something, just go with it. Right? Why create the friction mm. by saying, oh, I know how to mm. do it. Mm. Like, what's more attractive is the person that goes, yeah, okay, we'll, we'll give it a go. Or the person that goes, no, I know how to do it. Leave it with yeah. me. There, there's something in that. I, I think sort of the culture of being in team sports, especially something like rugby, you can't get too big for your own boots because people are bringing you down mm. straight away. And it's peer-led, right? It's not like mm. the coach is doing it or the team manager is doing it. It's the people that are with you every single day that are sort of bringing you back. and So you can never get ahead mm. of yourself. Um, mm. And I think, yeah, maybe it goes back to some of that stuff because, you know, I've always been a bit of an outlier, right? I've always been this humongous human being. So that's always stood out for me. Um, so, yeah, sometimes you just diffuse straight away by, you know, it's like that rap battle in 8 Mile with, with Eminem. There's nothing you can say about me which hasn't already been said. And if you go into life with that mentality, then everything's just good moving forward, right? Mm. So, yeah, mm. focus on that stuff. Mm. Take, diffuse mm. it, make it something that people mm. don't even focus attention mm. on. And, yeah, off, off you go. From what you said earlier, I still have this image of you as Will in Inbetweeners. Uh, <laughs> yes. <when you> <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very much so. Very much so. <laughs> the combination between Will and Jay is how my friends would describe it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, when you started selling, it was a recruitment. Yeah, stuff. For, yeah, yeah. You you were in recruitment sales. Yeah. Uh, I'm I'm interested in how the sales stack, sales tech, I should say. Where did that interest come from? Yeah, I mean, it's still sort of. I've always gone through this sort of process in my head. How can something be made more efficient, right? You know, and there's a huge amount of waste in selling, you know, like research mm. waste or thumbing the yellow pages waste or building a list waste. So there's always been that at the back of my head. Mm. I've always been quite sort of interested in stuff. And if I see something, I'm going to want to give it a go. But you've got to seek out that information. I think the real sort of process piece for me and when did it start to sort of align was so when I was still at Frost and Sullivan and it was before I took on the sort of ownership of new business for the team I kind of became our internal sort of gen one social selling champion around LinkedIn mm. that was it mm. um you know how do you do your content how do you do your steps how do you do your engagement what are you trying to achieve with it so I used to present on LinkedIn selling internally a lot mm. And that was quite interesting. And I was like, well, what are the tools available to us still? It's still phone, email, LinkedIn. Um, still very relationship, red tie, red brace kind of environment that I was in. So this was quite new. And where I got really interested is when I jumped out of consultancy, management consultancy, to my first tech startup, where I got over-promoted, by the way, to head of sales at a company called Cypher. 
and I had zero enablement, right? It was pre-revenue, it was pre-all of that stuff, it was build. And I was trying to juggle five different jobs into one job. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, what's the problem? Why can't I get anything done? Why can't I move the dial on anything? What can I do to help me? Because staffing wasn't an option right then. You know, finding other people to do other bits of stuff just wasn't on the plan. So that's when I started really researching and going deep on stuff. I started in Aaron Ross's mm. book. I then started Googling and meeting and putting phone calls out to CEOs of tech companies, sales tech companies. And yeah, that's really where the inception point was. And it wasn't because I'm deeply passionate about sales tech per se. It was because I was deeply passionate about trying to make my life easier, that I was trying to seek mm. out information to do that. That That's where it stemmed from, really. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. If there was one piece of sales tech that you could not live without, what would it be? I mean, it would be mine. It would be Connect and Sell. But I don't want to turn this into an advert for Connect and Sell. So uh, okay. beyond that, it would be... Um, I, I do a lot of my big deal selling in mutual action plans and I use a digital mutual action plan from Clary. It used to be called Deal Point, but they got acquired recently. Okay. And so it's called Clary Align. And it's basically just the yeah. entire lifetime value of a customer mapped out from first discovery all the way through to renewal. And I, I love that yeah. because it allows me to share resources. It allows me to change dates. It allows me to mm. change value propositions on the fly with my customer rather yeah. than me doing it for my customer. And so, yeah, it's, it's a massive bit of gear for me. Uh, I appreciate what you said about the Connect and Sell, and I, I want to share with you my story on Connect and Sell. Yep. Um, I was in at a Sandra conference, oh, it's a cook, maybe it was pre-pandemic, and uh, one of the guys there who's a, just a cold-calling beast, I was chatting to him, and he said, do you want to make some cold calls? He said, come on to my room. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's an invite. <laughs> yeah, I know. So we went to his room and he just takes out his computer, he takes out his phone and he starts explaining. I'd, I'd, I'd heard of it, but I didn't know anything about it. And he presses a couple of buttons and he goes, there he goes, he says, now they're making uh, 12 parallel calls. And he's, chat he's chatting to me and up pops a name on his computer and he just turns to it. And, and I had this recorded. I, I was so fascinated with it. I put my phone beside him and I just pressed record. And I've used those snippets in class several times to illustrate because there's this thing with people that says, oh, I need to research yeah. my ICP to death. Yeah. And he didn't, and if any of that, he had just had a name and industry. And he obviously knew what the typical, you know, these were all yeah. business owners, presidents, CEOs of companies, smallish companies. But he just fell into this conversation. And when it finished up, he pressed a button, out goes another one, and then boop! And it was just this, it was incredible. It was just to, to watch it. And he, he talked about solving the 95% problem, which is, you know, waiting for people to pick up and getting through to voicemails and stuff. And it was, it was amazing. And this is not sponsored, but no, I would no, encourage no. Every, anybody to, to look at it because uh, it's certainly in terms of a, a it's, productivity it's, it's, tool. It's, turning, it's turned sales into a computer game. That's that's the way that I describe it to, to my dad the other day. Yeah. Now, flip that over, because this is the bit I'm interested in. Is sales technology making people soft? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I thought there'd be a more nuanced no, answer. No, no, there's no nuance to it. There's no nuance okay. to it. Um, here's, here's my hypothesis at the moment. I think we've come a bit too far. And we've come okay. too far away from what is the purpose of selling. It's to have conversations because selling is all about conversations. That's the currency of how you manufacture deals is conversations. Yeah. Most modern reps today are now system experts. They're not domain or conversation experts. Mm. They will do anything yeah. they can do to hide from a conversation. They'll hide behind their list build, their research. They'll hide behind the perfect number of sequence steps they'll hide behind the intent data they'll hide behind anything rather than actually put themselves in the firing line and go and have conversations with complete strangers and that is the job turning strangers into friends that's the job okay so let, I, I i agree 100 percent. where's the let's go back to source though is that because people are hiring the wrong people or they just don't exist. And I'm also interested in the companies you see who've cracked that, what they're doing. 
I think it's a bit of Lord of the Flies out there at the moment. I think the reps run the strategy and the sales leadership doesn't. It's my big controversial opinion. Okay. I'd like to hear more about that because, again, it's, yeah, it's, it's you know what you're saying? You hear something. It's appealing because I know there's truth in it. Yeah. I mean, there's truth in it because, you know, there's this constant battle and tension about being in a frothy market at the moment. Let's put recessionary mm. headwinds to one side. Let's put warnings around sort of great resignation and great redundancy to one side for a second. Mm. We've never, ever been in more sort of intense capital flow period in our life. So a lot of capital. We've got an awful lot of sort of contentious um, opinions around what we need to do to acquire staff. We've got an awful lot of indexing on sort of culture and what that might mean, um, which means that actually there's very little emphasis placed on work, work product, right? The reason that you go to work is to transact your time for money to do something. Um, and for whatever reason, we've kind of forgotten about that in tech companies in particular, I think, apart from a few, and it's a few that I would sort of put on the pedestal as great companies now. Mm. What does it mean? It means that we're not asking people or requiring them to do things because we don't mm. want to be accused of being micromanaging them. Mm. I, hire, I hire people and then I get out of their way. That's fine if you've got creatives. That's fine if you've got domain experts who are a management consultancy where you're hiring super smart people. But we're talking about grads out of uni that don't even know if this is what they want to do for a living, nine times out of mm. ten. Haven't found the vocational component attached to the career stream. Um, and we've got leaders that probably underqualified to be leaders because they've got tapped on the shoulder because somebody left and they said, right, you're up, you've been here next, you're the longest serving guy, you, you do it. They're just perpetuating the system. But because they're coming up out of the trenches, they don't want to lose their friendships, so they don't make people do hard things and they don't mm. question doing hard things. And it's so common, so common. I see it every day. I speak, like you, I, I spend my life speaking to sales leaders and there are so many that are fundamentally weak on command and control. Mm. Now, you can, I, you you know, can do command and control and still be a good leader, but you've got yeah. to get the work done. Yeah. yeah. That's something I could never understand. And I, I, I'll give you a, a for instance. Recently, I, I had this 12-week program, and there's multiple people of different companies taking part in, in this program. And there was one manager approached me before I started, and she had X number, I won't go into too many details, but she had, she had, she had a small team. And once to put them all on it, they're all excited, they're all looking forward to it, that's great. Week four in, I look, none of them are on the call. So I contacted her and I said, listen, you know, was there an offsite? is everything okay? Oh, I didn't realize they, had, they, had, they weren't showing up. Now I'm worried they haven't been shown up to any. And I said, well, look, I don't know. I said, I wasn't keeping count on the first few sessions, but on this one, and in fact, two of them, I said, have written to me to say, uh, we don't want to participate anymore. We, we were signed up for this and uh, we've we, we done this before we know it all. Yeah. So I, I said this and I said, this, this particular individual, I said, I assume he's top of the leaderboard. She goes, actually, no, he's the bottom. And, you know, and, and I followed up and she wanted kind of more data on it. And, and now she's gone dark because uh, she doesn't want to deal with it. And she never wanted to deal with it in the first place, which is why they are the way they are. And I think I just, so this is where I want to get to. Is it, you know, in Sandra, there was an expression I learned years ago. There's no such thing as bad prospects, only bad salespeople. Yeah. And I'm just wondering, is it, this, is, can you say there's no such thing as bad salespeople, only bad managers? No, I think there are bad salespeople as well. But, but they were hired and recruited, surely, by somebody who yeah. should have known that. My, my favorite sort of recruitment analogy at the moment is sort of cuts across to American sports. You know, your championship mm. winning team is built in the draft, right? It's mm. not built in the competition. Um, so, yeah, we get recruitment wrong a lot because we recruit on the wrong factors. Competency, you said, is the price of admission. After mm. that, you've actually got to get into DNA. So what do we do at Connecting? So we'll use Dave Curlin's OMG assessments as our first screening criteria. If you don't match mm -hmm. the score that we require for you, you don't get hired. It's that simple. Mm. Mm. Right? So we're, we're pushing assessment up to the top of the process, not the bottom of the process. And that way we have less... We select a lot of people out because they don't meet the criteria. Mm. But guess mm. what? That's fine. We're okay with that because we'd rather hire judiciously to the right person and the right attributes than to the wrong person who's got an amazing talk track on how brilliant they are. Mm. 
So there's a bit yeah. of that that goes around. We don't teach our leaders how to be good recruiters. So the inconsistencies that happen in interviews is is massive. We don't know what we're measuring for and against. So we don't mm. have criteria. And then I think the third thing is we don't actually sort of question how people deliver on their execution, right? So mm. we ask somebody to do a 30, 60, 90, but guess what? Most people are paying for somebody to do that for them. So they don't even have to do that work. They just work on the presentation component. So it's not mm. actually an accurate reflection of how that person is going to come in and execute the job. So can you tell me what, what a 30, 60, 90 is? I'm not familiar. Yeah, I mean, like a lot of, like, if I'm an AEE going into a gig at a tech company, I'm probably going to have to be give, give them a 30, 60, 90 day plan on what am I going to oh, do. Oh, a plan, my okay. First, yeah, Got my you. first 30, yeah, 60, yeah. 90 days. But yeah. most of those plans don't reflect, reflect reality in any way, shape, or form. Mm. And they're just mm. not an accountability measure either. It's not like there's a subcontract signed against that plan. This mm. is the plan that you delivered in your interview. Oh, now you've started. Mm. Okay, yeah, do what you want. All right, what are we holding them accountable mm. to? So, mm. you know, I think there's a huge amount there. Um, yeah. so, so there's a lot that goes wrong at that point. I think the real issue, though, is that if I'm sales rep A and I'm not happy, I can look over the fence and get a job that's paying me more at company B tomorrow like that. So there's no mm. consequences for me to having to dig in learn the proposition, become an expert at the proposition, where I could just focus my time on something that feels more operational and interesting and use operational competence as my excuse rather than you know, commercial competence as my excuse. Most people don't mm. want to become commercially competent. And that's, that's half no. the battle. Yeah, yeah. I also think in terms of recruitment, again, I once heard it described as a, a recruiting somebody is like a sales call on an overeager buyer that the, the sales manager really, really wants to fill this role and has, ha has their happy years on. And I also think that if you, if you, if you change the script and said, instead of saying, you, know, you, you have hammocks at work, you have free breakfast, you have all of these, these extra benefits and, and swag and all that yeah. crap. If you focus and said, working here is gonna be hard, the hardest thing you've ever done, you're gonna to have to dig deep. Yeah. But in the end, you'll be glad that you'd yeah. actually attract the right type of a person, no, the person no, no, who's we, attracted and not afraid. We, we, we did some recruitment for the region at the end of December and I had a guy come back to me. This is when the market was really frothy. Sorry, January. Mm. And uh, he came back to me with sort of five competitive offers overnight where everybody had increased salary to try and get him. And I was like, mm. I'm not doing that. I'm just not doing mm. it. I said, because it becomes unrealistic, especially on the OTEs. I said, can you do me a favor before you make a decision and disqualify yourself out from me? Go back to every single one of them and say to them, can you show me your highest performer and if they're getting there? And he went back to them and he asked them that question and not one of them had a single rep that was wow. performing at the OTEs that they were guaranteeing him Wow! to get him to sign. And I said, right, come back to me and we'll talk you through how I think we can get you to a lower number than they're offering, but we'll get you. There. Mm -hmm. We're going to coach yeah. you. We're going to give you this enablement. We're going to deliver this system. We're going to give you X number of inbounds. You're going to have to go out and do this. These are the ways in which we're going to support your endeavor, build the business. But mm. this is actually attainable if you achieve these things mm. and work alongside us to get it right. Mm. And he turned down all the other offers, which, you know, shows that actually saying to somebody this is hard it's not easy but people don't want to hear that right and in that the wrong mix, people don't want to hear it no no but we, i interviewed a hell of a lot of people before we hired somebody and we mm. put a lot of people through the screening and the screening came back i mean we saw some of the worst results we've ever seen and we were getting like candidates that were coming into us from like you know low six figure base kind of tech backgrounds but their DNA simply didn't match up to the requirements. So they weren't even worth the mm. conversation. Nine times out of 10 though, most other sales leaders are seeing like X company on their CV and they're going, right, have to speak to this person, must be good. Massive disconnect. Yeah, I don't know that that's anything new because 20 years, I've been doing this now 20 years. So it's 20, 21, 22 years ago, I remember I was working at a startup company and I was the first full-time salesperson that hired I was a bad hire. I shouldn't have been hired. I did not have the experience yeah. or now one thing I, I, I was willing to do, I hated it, but I was willing to pick the phone up. Yeah. Talk, I just, I didn't have the skill set. I'd never been trained properly in yeah. what to look for and, and how to conduct that. But 
I remember they when they got some extra VC money and they wanted to expand the sales team. I remember the CEO saying, we're now going to hire some big hitters. And they started getting these sales guys who'd work for some big, big tech companies. Um, and and, and I, I had huge expectations that they, you know, I could learn from them. And, and I remember going to the 3GSM Congress, as it was called back then in Cannes, and we had this stand and watching these guys like, like frozen statues on a stand. And I'm seeing people go by and they'll have a badge of a, of a, of a prospect company. And I would see them go to the bar, you know, to the coffee dock or wherever. And I follow them over, sidle up to them and, oh, I see you're from and I introduce you. They were, they were completely afraid to do that. They, they wouldn't move. Yeah. And then they'd, they'd, they'd come in with the excuse that, oh, we're closers. And like opening the conversation, that's, you know, that's somebody else's job. And it was, and that's, that's a while ago. That's not yesterday. So I just think maybe it's gotten worse. No. I don't know. Or me. I, I think uh, it I has. Do know but, that, but if I look at yeah. worthy companies in tech right now, who are the worthy companies? MongoDB, ServiceNow, mm. Lacework, right? They're all market dominant. They make their senior mm. AEs who earn 150 grand a year base salaries pick up the phone. They have to mm. prospect for themselves as much as they've got SDRs and openers for them. They've mm. still got a prospect. All right. Yeah. Why are they? Why are they? You know the tech companies that stock markets haven't bet against in this current sort of stock market correction for right now for SaaS because mm. they're the companies that reinvest their profits back in their go-to-market mm. and mm. they find durable reps who don't mind generating pipeline for themselves if you can't do that you can't even be called a seller you can be called a docusign sender maybe that's the strategy why don't we just all send docusigns to everybody in the market see what's land and then hit the goal that, that could be how you go yeah. to market moving forward based on what I'm seeing behaviorally right now. Yeah. I've just realized where Gong got their name from and it's just clicked with me. <laughs> I never connected those two dots yeah. before. No, the, I, I actually the. hadn't either. So, yeah. Yeah. Light bulb. Yeah. Because <laughs> I, I was visually thinking, you know, ringing the bell, but never, never, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, tell me who inspires you? Um, Who inspires me? So... I'm very fortunate to work for two of my mentors um, who, who just by their actions every single day inspire me. Chris Bill, who's the CEO at Connect and Sound, John T. McLaren, who's my direct boss, SVP, sales mm. and marketing, just because their depth of experience is insane, but they're not too scared to do stuff. You know, they do, mm. right? I like leaders mm. that actually show the way and they do that. Mm. Um I'm inspired every day by my family. You know, I think my wife is one of the most remarkable people I know. She's exceptionally stoic, resilient, but competent and wears it with a smile the whole time. She's always rational. Um, I find that ability to stay emotionally neutral amazing because I'm not always the most emotionally mm. uh, stable dude. Um, mm. And then I sort of seek out inspiration from different sources. You know, I like I look into sport a lot just because I'm so passionate about it. I, I sort of seek out mm. inspiration from small things like, you know, people that show gratitude. You know, I'm amazingly mm. sort of humbled by that. And, you know, I just, yeah, I find that, you know, anybody who just shows up every single day is worthy of inspiration because that's half the battle, right? There's 10 things that require no talent. And I admire the people in the world that demonstrate those 10 things consistently. Everything else takes mm. care of itself after that. So I'm always going to respect people that work hard. I'm always going to be inspired by people that sort of show up on time, that dress appropriately, that have got the right attitude. Get that right. I'll I'll go a, a thousand miles for you and with you. Mm. But if you turn up with the wrong sort of an, attitude or sentiment or mentality, then, yeah, we, we're going to get off to a bad start, really, I think. Are they quite subjective? Um, are they quite subjective? Yes and no. Like, I know if somebody turns up 15 minutes early all the time, that I can quantify that. Mm. Um, yeah, maybe they are subjective. Maybe they are. And I think that's one of the dynamics, right? Everyone's got different opinions and different perspectives and different takes on a situation, right? Somebody could say that was a great call. Somebody else could say that was a horror show of a call, right? Mm. It's just based on mm. your, your own situational awareness and what yeah. you measure. So, yeah, I think it's a good question.
Well, I, 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 where, where I thought of it was uh, Dragon's Den. I remember an episode, and I'm trying to remember the name of the guy. Peter, can you fit in the... He's always wears a suit. Peter, and he's a very tall guy. Uh, 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 yeah, he was calf, was he calf in my house? He was one of them. Yes, it? yes, yeah. it one of those, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Distribution, I know, is his, yeah. is his area. And some guy looking for investment shows up uh, dressed very casual, jeans and a t-shirt. And his comment was, you, you come in here and you show disrespect by dressing that, you better have one hell of an idea to compensate. Yeah. And I, I thought, yeah, it is, there, there's, it's not a, it's not a black and white thing, but, and it's not about the dress. I think his point was, it's the effort and respect. The effort. Yeah, the effort and respect. Yeah. Like, I don't uh, wear you, suits you, at all anymore, right? Yeah. I just don't, because my, my client base doesn't, and they don't expect yeah. it from me. And, yeah. you know, we've kind of got this sort of weird mindset that if I would show up in a suit these days, I'd be the most junior person in the room, not the most senior. All right, it's kind of like a media agency mindset. Yeah, but you can still yeah. make an effort with what you do put on. You can still make an yeah. effort with you know whether or not you sort of brush your teeth or clip your nails and stuff, because yeah. it is respectful. Um, you know, the other things are like being prepared. That's one of the major ones for me. Again, you don't need to be the most competent or the most sort of smart dude or girl in the room, mm. but if you come prepared, that mm. that that's always good, right? That's not a bad mm. thing. That doesn't require talent. You can just be prepared. Mm. You can just have your facts in order. Mm. Um, mm. Passion, you know, passion is a visceral thing. You can't really measure it, but at the same time, you can feel it and you can see it. Mm. High mm. energy. No, you can't be high energy all the time. And high energy doesn't need to be like a puppy dog. But, you know, you can still bring energy to everything you do. You know, those things don't require mm. any skill. They're just mindset stuff, right? Mm. And that's so inspirational. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, yeah. Jerry, we are running up against the buffers yeah, on time, no and I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Thank you very much. For uh, I have me. just a, not at all. Uh, I've just a couple of quick questions to to finish this out. Uh, first one is: your house is burning down. Your family are safe. If you have any pets, they're safe, and of course, your phone and computer are safe. You have time to run back in and rescue one item out of your house before it burns to the ground. What would you What would you pick up? My golf clubs. Okay. <laughs> so they're not permanently in the boot of your car then? <laughs> no, no, I've got golf okay. clubs strewn all over the place. So, Interesting. Yeah. All right. Of course, you need them then because it's a burglary as well. Yeah. <laughs> no, I just give myself different scenarios in my garden. Yeah. So, yeah, that's it. Very good. Very good. Um, and then Desert Island, you're going to be ruined. What one thing would you bring with you? Uh, object? Object thing? Yeah. Um, Typically. Probably my Kindle. Okay. Yeah. Because that has everything right. I need on it. Yeah. Final question. When your time on this planet is done and there is a statue erected in your honor outside headquarters of Connect and Cell, right. what would you like the plaque to say? He cared a lot. I love it. Jerry Hill, thank you so much for being my thank guest today. It's been an absolute joy. No, thank wonderful. you. Thank you.